Hello, and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Aidan Muat to the show. Aidan is the CEO and co-founder of Hazel Technologies, a post-harvest crop protection company making biochemical solutions to extend produce shelf life. He holds a PhD in chemistry from Northwestern University, where his doctoral work focused techniques to design and synthesize highly efficient catalysts for transformations of renewables. Under Aiden's leadership, Hazel Technologies won the Clean Energy Challenge in 2016 and the Venture Well Sustainable Practice Impact Award in 2019. Aiden, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well, Raj. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Aiden, thank you for joining. Aiden, I, I like to kick off the conversation with my guest about something interesting about them that you know, most people might not be aware of. <laughs> I, um, I had a friend in college. He, uh, he used to refer to me as the wheel of skills um, because he would, uh, you'd, you'd go into any random conversation and I would, uh, it turns out that I've been doing something in that conversation um, that nobody really does as a hobby except for people like me. So he'd always go, okay, let's spin the wheel of skills. Aiden, shout out a random skill. Um, so I've been a professional musician for uh, the better part of 15 years at this point. I uh, used to be a professional charcutier in Atlanta. Um, I have an IMDb credit. Uh, I've written a novel. I've uh, been brewing for 15 years. I mean, I could just keep going all day. You know what I mean? That's super fascinating. You know, the other day I was thinking about the term polymath. And, you know, so personally, in the past, I've flown airplanes. Um, you know, I've, I've written a book. I've, I've brewed alcohol when I was younger. So many of these skills that you're mentioning are resonating with me. And I was wondering how good does one have to be at something in order to be considered a polymath? Any idea on that? It's a fascinating question. So um, one quote that I always like to keep in mind, or quote, fact I like to keep in mind, the word amateur, um, which sort of has a, a dirty context, you know, in the modern day, it's, it distinguishes you from professional. The word amateur comes from the Latin word amare, which means, you know, to love. Um, mm-hmm. So an amateur is someone who does something for the love of it. And I think there's a really interesting debate and, and, not necessarily to relate this back to my own field, but I think there's a very interesting debate going on in food right now, which is this question of um, scalability versus quality, right? So I I would actually argue that I think probably the people that do things on a one-off basis, uh, you know, certainly you don't have the same kinds of quality control mechanisms that you would for a professional basis, but at the same time, you are able to spend more time and more care on any given project. And as a result, I think the level of craftsmanship has the potential to be much, much higher. Um, so for example, uh, I'll just use this as a random example. Um, I talked about alcohol just a second ago. I just distilled um, a bunch of uh, uh, raspberries from my lab into uh, a German schnapps called Himbergeist. It's a you know raspberry schnapps. And I can only think of one brand on the planet um, of, of Himbergeist you can buy in the United States. Um, but here I am able to produce a, a, a product that I think is of at least competitive quality. And here's the thing. It's the only different kind of Himmlergeist you're ever going to see uh, in the city of Chicago, just because you, you basically only have the one commercial option. And where else are you going to go if you want to try something new and interesting? So that's kind of my thought process on on that distinction. I think that if you practice anything long enough, you're going to get really good at it. And I think if you have the time and the devotion uh, to perform a project, uh, that there's a very good chance that the quality of your output is going to be at least professional or higher. So then I'm going to step out on a limb and say both of us should celebrate the label of polymath. 
I, I try not to call myself things, but, uh, you know, since you brought it up, yeah, I think uh, it's a celebration indeed. Um, and it's a pleasure to meet a fellow polymath. Well, I appreciate it. So, Aiden, can you give a brief description of your current endeavor, your current organization? Absolutely. Uh, so Hazel Technologies has a pretty simple mission, uh, which is that we want to we want to stop spoilage waste. We want to stop food waste, basically. And we want to do that by giving unprecedented control of the shelf life of perishables to every stakeholder in the food supply chain, whether they're uh, producers, whether they're retailers and distributors, uh, or even whether they're consumers, ultimately. So uh, my background is in chemistry. Uh, I did my PhD in chemistry at Northwestern in 2016. And we founded the company uh, a year before that in 2015. Um, and so you can imagine that our approach to the market is, of course, one that attempts to leverage uh, biochemistry and biotechnology uh, to to perform these shelf life extensions on perishables. The the other side of that, though, is that I what is commonly referred to as a sustainability chemist or a green chemist. Um, so my PhD work focused heavily on uh, transformation of platform chemicals or uh, renewable in, in, uh, inputs into platform chemicals. Uh, transformations of clean energy relevance and so forth. Um, and porting that over into the food supply chain uh, brought with it the philosophy, you know, A, that we need to be using the uh, reduce, reuse, recycle principles in order to make uh, whatever inputs we're putting into the food supply chain more sustainable, uh, but also B, that we want to be we want to be responsible about the chemistries that we're deploying. We want to make sure that we're not adding new chemicals into the food supply, um, that we're not doing anything that's either ecologically or health-wise harmful, uh, so forth and so on. So we exist at that apex of wanting to, to solve a major sustainability problem using a very value-added tool, which is how I think of biochemistry, um, but forcing ourselves to be ethical, moral, and ensuring that uh, everything that we do is completely safe for human, animal, plant, and environmental life. So that's fascinating. And I really like the way you said, you know, all the stakeholders, because I feel like so often products are almost designed in a vacuum. But I'm guessing in your case, all the way from the growers to the consumers. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we've, we started off our journey working, I mean, almost exclusively at the farm level. Uh, so, you know, in the first few years of the company, myself and the other co-founders who, you know, back in 2016, we were the only employees. We spent half our year traveling all over the United States, you know, Florida, Georgia, California, Pacific Northwest, everywhere that there's arable farmland. And we would meet with the growers themselves and we would uh, first off, ask them for their story. You know, we wanted to know about their operations, their needs, uh, and whether or not they had problems that were of the type that we thought we were equipped to solve. And when we heard from enough of them that they thought this was a serious problem, we would introduce our, our technology proposal. We'd say, okay, here's what we think we want to do. Um, here's the type of product that we want you to use. This is where we see it fitting into your operations based on how you've described it. Now, is that something you'd like to partner with us on? And um, that was a very successful approach because I think we listened first uh, to understand the problem. And then that allowed us to actually solve the problem rather than simply proposing solutions that, that problems that, that don't really exist in the market. And that journey was, was deliberately constructed for us to go to one of the most complex marketplaces that exist. I mean, Farmers, growers in the United States, certainly, but I think all over the world are in a very difficult position uh, you know, they experience both demand and supply side economic problems um, such that if, if you really think through the market in any way, 
whether you're having a, a lean year or whether you're having a glut year, um, whether your product is more popular, whether your product is less popular, um, farmers always have some kind of negative ec economic interaction with the market. It's very difficult to win in that market. So we said, well, that's that's the difficult place. Let's go there and let's work there first. And if we can solve those problems, then we can matriculate that solution down throughout the rest of the supply chain. And, and sure enough, that's exactly what's happening today. So having started at the grower side, getting you know positive traction, positive commentary, partnerships, all of these things over the last few years, now the retailers are paying attention. And now we're talking to the retailers and, and setting up independent solutions for their supply chains as well. And then we envision that matriculating even further and going to the consumer, because once we've proven that we can extend post-retail shelf life, there's no reason we can't take that same technology and put it in the hands of the consumers. So we really have a unified vision of the market where we want our technology to touch every single perishable supply chain on the planet, regardless of what segment of the supply chain it is. Now, I've got a couple of questions in my head. I'm going to try to order them correctly. First of all, without giving too much away, can you share a little bit about how your product works? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, at, its, at its root, I, I always like to sort of make this as a joke, but it is a true statement. Um, we're actually sort of a material science company disguised as uh, an, an agricultural science company. Um, and the reason that I say that is while we do use uh, bioactive ingredients uh, to achieve shelf life enhancements for perishables, the real innovation that we brought to the market is how we deliver those bioactives. Um, and, and then that's really where our secret sauce lies. So what we're able to do <clears throat> is we're able to functionalize materials. And, and, in, and when I say materials, I'm, I'm including a broad spectrum, but um, we work almost exclusively with naturally occurring materials. So we're able to functionalize things like wood, uh, you know, dirt, ash, sand, um, these types of materials. We're actually able to make from those materials um, further materials that have the ability to store and time release uh, bioactive ingredients into the storage atmosphere of perishable goods uh, purely as an atmospheric treatment. So everything that we do is in the gas phase. It's a, it's a very small amount of active gas that goes into the storage environment, um, treats the atmosphere around those perishable goods, uh, and in doing so, we target specific shelf life problems in those goods that then allows us to extend the shelf life. So I'll give you a, a concrete example, which is um, one of our flagship products as uh, our ethylene inhibition product. So ethylene is uh, an aging hormone. It's a, it's a gas that is emitted by produce uh, during its life cycle. And ethylene, in turn, triggers aging responses in that produce. Uh, and, and those aging responses initially begin as ripening but ultimately lead to over-ripening uh, and degradation of color, firmness, texture, flavor, um, and increased susceptibility to disease and other pathogens. In the presence of a very small atmospheric concentration of an ethylene inhibitor, um, we're actually able to disrupt that response to the ethylene. We're able to control the hormonal activity of that produce, and that allows us to control the metabolic rate. So we can actually control the rate at which produce breeds. And people don't think of uh, fruits and vegetables as living things, but they truly are seeds and, and plant parts and so forth. So they are actually alive and breathing at all times. And when you can control that uh, metabolic rate, now you have the ability to slow it down. And in doing so, we can extend shelf life for the maximum duration during that storage and transit process, uh, you know, up to up to threefold over the original shelf life and, and even beyond into the retail space, um, the produce that we see treated on average 
has about three to four extra days of shelf life post retail in the consumer's hands. Um, so it's a very powerful technology and we do it all without ever applying a chemical to the produce directly. Um, we add no new chemicals to the food supply. Uh, everything we do is grass, generally regarded as safe. Um, we have both conventional and organic solutions. So we actually can use bioactive ingredients that are naturally derived. They come from uh, botanical extracts, plant extracts and things of that nature. Um, and since everything is in the gas phase, there's no residue on the produce uh, to impinge taste or to um, even present the slightest risk of exposure uh, to anybody in the supply chain. So that's how we play. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're slowing the aging process. Yeah. Yeah, that's an adequate way of putting it. Um, when's it going to be ready for human testing? <laughs> uh, the very same day that humans age via the ethylene senescence pathway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it, you know it's interesting, though, because... People don't, it, it, well, I get that question more often than any other question, but I actually am still amused by it because every time somebody asks me, I think about the, the what is essentially the unlimited potential of having a platform technology like we have, because the, the tendency I think for people is to think of things in terms of specific uh, problems. Hey, I, you know, I've got mold on a raspberry or, hey, um, this chicken isn't lasting long enough or, hey, this bread went stale. But the thing is, there's an active ingredient out there for each and every one of those problems. And the issue isn't whether or not there's active ingredients out there. It's how are you going to deliver them in a packaged goods context? If, if, my, if my, my chicken slice is in a foam tray uh, wrapped in plastic, my options for treating that chicken during storage and transit are quite limited unless I've found a way to functionalize that packaging environment. Say, for example, by having it contain a small amount of atmospheric active ingredient uh, in the actual packaging materials themselves. So, um, you know, I don't know about human shelf life extension, unfortunately, uh, but things like um, nitrate greening and bacon, things like uh, uh, browning and, and um, microbial activity on cut meats, things like mildew and leather. Uh, these are all problems that actually can be solved using our same technology platform. And indeed, we are developing more solutions as we speak. You know, it's so relevant to me. Last night, I was having a conversation with my daughter, and we we're staring at a brown banana, and I was trying to convince her to eat it because it's sweeter, but she would have nothing to do with it. That's, uh, that's a very – so I've always said there's three um, – you got three legs to the stool in terms of uh, how we're going to prop up the food system, right? One leg is pre-farm gate, so you've got you – know, you got to have yield. you got to have production. Um, you got to have uh, technologies that allow you to efficiently harvest goods and, and ship them out and, and keep track of everything. So you got that free pre-farm gate efficiency piece. The next leg is the supply chain technologies that allow you to get it from point A to point B. And, and that's where we play. That's what our kind of product is. But then there's a third leg, which is actually what I call consumer behavior modification. And, and people don't like that, that phrase because they think it sounds like it's psychological torture. But that, that means things like marketing, um, health marketing, advertising, uh, scientific studies, you know, dissemination of scientific information to the populace. And so the, the idea of you needing to convince your daughter that brown bananas are actually the better ones to eat, that's completely correct. And it is very funny to me that we still have to convince people to do the right thing rather than the, the more aesthetically proposed thing. Um, so it's, it's, it's a significant problem in the food industry. It's not one that we're working on specifically other than the science communication piece. But uh, please, by all means, continue to, to modify your daughter's behavior. Well, and you know, as you were speaking, I've been reading recently that up to 30 to 40 percent of produce gets thrown away because of issues regarding, you know, some of these issues regarding ripening and not being able to last long enough. So I think 
from that perspective, the impact can be tremendous. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, in the United States, too, the principal criterion for produce selection by a consumer is uh, aesthetic, right? It's, it's you know, the, the joke about American tomatoes is, of course, that they they don't taste good. You know, they're, they're basically just cardboard with tomato flavoring. Um, and that's because we've created a supply chain that emphasizes getting the, the form of that tomato, getting the shape and the weight and the, the uh, external skin of that tomato exactly right for the consumer without so much being concerned about what the flavor profile looks like. And, and the other side of that is those tomatoes continue to be purchased, right? So there's, there's some truth to that economic statement that the American consumer at least buys tomatoes based on aesthetic preferences rather than based on, on taste criteria. Now, the, the entire market doesn't trend that way. There are lots of high-value tomatoes. They are fantastic tasting, um, and they actually command a majority of the price-based transactions in the country because of, if you can get $4.99 a pound for a pound of organic tomatoes, um, but you can only get 20 cents a pound for a pound of conventional beef steaks. Obviously, one of those has a lot more revenue potential than the other. Um, but <clears throat> it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting market dynamic uh, to have to work with. And, uh, you know, it's something that is true, I think, no matter where you go, that the choices that a consumer makes for their dinner plate um, are going to be driven by a number of different factors. Taste is certainly one of them. Aesthetic presentation is one of them. Price is another one. And so we have to think about all these things in context. You know, I feel that way about blueberries. I feel blueberries are very hit and miss regarding flavor. Sometimes you get a bunch and you can't taste anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I don't know how much you've looked into that market, but the uh, there was an article that was published in a trade magazine about, um, oh, I want to say maybe six months ago, and it, it identified that the number one criterion for um, high value blueberry pricing is what they call waxy bloom. So if the blueberry has waxy bloom, they can charge $3.99 a pint for it. Um, and then if it doesn't have that waxy bloom, then it, the, the quality of that decreases from there. I think the ironic thing about that is that that means then that you can sell a completely unripened blueberry uh, that has just been sort of shined up and shipped out before it's had any chance to mature whatsoever. And it will taste exactly like nothing. It'll taste like cellulose. Uh, but if it's got that waxy bloom on it, they'll still sell it at $2.99, $3.99 a pint. You know? Whereas what you really want is the the dark blue, almost a little squishy, you know, very tart and very sweet simultaneously variety. And, and that's just that's just not aesthetically presented with the right uh, criteria. Right. Just something with a stronger flavor profile. So I'm glad to know I wasn't imagining things. <laughs> oh. Nope. Aiden, switching, switching gears a little bit, you know, the focus of the show is, you know, the why behind people do what they do. You know, there's an opportunity cost for you to be pursuing your current endeavor. You know, what drives you? What's your why behind what you do? I'll tell you the sort of the origin story. Um, and I, I think it's indicative of a number of um, perspectives that I hold. Uh, so I'll, I'll link it back into my personality in a moment. But uh, when we started the company, <clears throat> um, I really had no background in agricultural technology whatsoever. I, I was a pure scientist. Um, I had uh, been doing laboratory science that was about 20 years old. So it's, you know, this was in 2015. Uh, so I was, uh, I was just about uh, 29, 28, 29 at the time. Um, so I've been about a decade of, of laboratory science. Uh, in 2014, 2015, I was the chemistry fellow for a group called the Institute for Sustainability and Energy at Northwestern, Eisen. Uh, and in that fellowship, 
two things happened to me. One was that I went through some coursework that was intended to expose me to broader challenges in technological sustainability and world systems. And I, I, I thought through a very interesting fact, which was um, you look at most world enterprises, medicine, energy, transportation, commerce, um, you see that we've had massive, massive technological revolutions over the last two to three decades. Uh, you know, we're, we're at a point now where wind energy and solar energy are cost competitive with natural gas in the United States, which is the cheapest natural gas that, the, that humanity has ever seen. So renewables, you know, have come so far so fast, and that's all because of the technology presence. But if you look at agriculture, agriculture has not had that revolution. Uh, it, it's, it's still a very slow moving industry. We're still doing things fundamentally the same as we did 150 years ago. Um, not only that, Agriculture is centrally dependent on chemistry. Um, and there's a very easy illustration of this. If, if you're familiar with something called the Haber-Bosch process, um, Haber-Bosch is, is the process that we use to convert nitrogen into ammonia and forms the basis for the majority of the nitrogen content in our fertilizer. And the impact of this process is as follows. Um, because of this one chemical process, it's estimated that about 50% of the people alive today are only alive because of that process. Uh, so it's estimated that without Haber-Bosch, we would have only had a world population of about 3.75 billion today. So the, the, the power of chemistry to transform the world of agriculture is phenomenal. <clears throat> and agriculture is, of course, the biggest industry on the planet. You know, people can talk about a lot of things, but here's the thing. There's only one industry that's guaranteed to touch every person on the planet every day of their lives, and that's agriculture, because we all have to eat. So looking at this problem of agriculture hasn't been transformed and the central component of agricultural transformation is chemistry, um, I felt a calling, right? I, I said, oh my God, that, you know, that's something that I do. I, I am a chemist. I, can, I now see a, an application for the knowledge that I have in a major world system that's practically begging to be revolutionized uh, you know, as quickly as we can because climate change is a problem and because population growth is a problem and because we need to be able to produce calories. So that's the philosophical background um, that happened to me. The other thing that occurred in Eisen was um, I was put into a, what's essentially an entrepreneurial accelerator. And that's where I met the other co-founders of Hazel. Um, and that's where we started the, the uh, company. And, and that was a very interesting experience for me as well. I'll talk about that a little bit less. Uh, but basically, it had never occurred to me that I could just run my own business. Um, and so being given some of the tools uh, and being put into a position where I had good networking opportunities, good fundraising opportunities... Um, and just generally being educated in the science of what it is to become an entrepreneur, uh, that was very transformative for me. So you put those two things together, that massive passion now for um, using what I know to, to, to revolutionize a world system at a time when the world desperately needs those kinds of revolutions, and then being given a toolkit and meeting other co-founders who are passionate about the same concept, that's really what, what was the genesis of the company for me. So that's really interesting. And does that that worldview of, you know, trying to help feed people tie back to anything from your childhood? <laughs> um, well, you know, I grew up cooking. Uh, my mother is a very talented cook uh, and, and sort of forced me when I was very young to participate. Um, and to the extent that I never really appreciated how deep my ties to it go. But even to this day, it's funny. I work with a lot of guys. They do, you know, processed salads, processed foods, cut foods. I have, I don't think I buy any single processed thing. I mean, I, I do eat at a lot of restaurants, but aside from that, I prep pretty much everything I make from scratch, uh, even to this day. Uh, and I'm, and I'm pretty good at it. And I, that makes me very happy. So food is always love. 
where I come from. I mean, I'm from the Southeast. You know, it's always about hospitality. It's always about, can I fix you a plate of something? You know, come in, have a plate or take one to go with you, whatever it is. But you feed people. That's how you show them that you care about them. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is my, my mother's family, my grandfather, my uncle, my great-grandfather, um, they're makers. They're, they're people that make things. Uh, you know, none of them ever graduated past high school, really. Uh, but they're all ex-military, you know, Green Beret, uh, Army Ranger type folks. Very, very skilled engineers. Incredible. I mean, my, my great-grandfather made the tools that he used to build his own house, his, his own first house uh, in, uh, in Indiana, uh, you know, about a century ago, give or take. So I grew up in a shop. I grew up working with electrical, working with carpentry, um, with the idea that you can make anything you want to make uh, if you just put your mind to it and learn a couple of skills. And even though people hear, oh, he's a, you know, he's a doctor of chemistry, they think that that's some sort of academic pursuit for me. But I, I consider myself to be a synthetic chemist. I consider myself to be purely a maker. You know, I've, I've got a background in theoretical chemistry and I've got a good background in physics. But at the end of the day, my real passion lies for making things. And so I think that's where this company really hits home for me is at the apex of saying, OK, well, I care about food because I care about people and I like to contribute to the world by virtue of making real things and applying them in the real world. You know, I think that's what it goes back to in my childhood. So I think you and I would get along swimmingly first on the food piece. I am the cook at home. I love preparing from scratch and I consider food as a vehicle of love. And so I actually speak while I'm cooking. So to convey that feeling and on the other piece, I consider myself a continuous tinkerer. And so I'm always tinkering, trying to make things. It doesn't matter what it is, or at least fix things. I'm I'm always the first one to say, look, if it's broken, let me try to fix it before you buy a new one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hell, I'll uh, I'll make dinner for you sometime if you'll make dinner for me. Absolutely, it's a deal. Cool. It's a deal. Love it. Um. So, how's this entrepreneurial journey been? It, you know, and I'm going to start off with. Often when I meet academics, you know, someone who's just you know been studying for a long time, then they could transition to opening a business or starting a business. The journey gets, you know, really tumultuous. So I'm curious to, you know, find out for you how's it been. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a totally relevant point. I think I have a bit of a different uh, perspective than the average academic, uh, just just based on, um, you know, some of the information I was just sharing about my own childhood. But I also spent a couple of years working before I went on to get my PhD. So I was in industry for about three years before um, before going back to school. So I've got some of that perspective as well. Uh, but nevertheless, it is tumultuous, and, and not only that, I can see why. It's difficult for academics because the paradigm of what you have to accomplish and how you accomplish it um, is just radically different. You know, in an academic environment, um, the idea is, you know, certainly that applied research is valuable, but that um, and I'll just use this as one example of where there's a disparity. Uh, you know, the tendency for a Ph.D. is to want to explore every variable in a process and to want to know what the correlation is between every input and every output. And that's a process that can take essentially unlimited time and unlimited energy. And you can write an entire doctoral thesis on nothing but the subgap states inherent in different levels of N-dope semiconductors. And that's a valuable study, but that has nothing to do with a, with a real world output, so to speak. It's, it's a fundamental output. Whereas I think in entrepreneurship, the, the, the first make or break challenge that every single entrepreneur experiences is the ability to make good decisions with imperfect information. Because you're never going to be able to find out every side of a thing. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough resources. You don't have enough partnerships. 
Um, and if you spend too much time navel gazing, and I, I, you know, that's a pejorative term, but I do think that it's relevant, uh, at least in the company context, if you spend too much time internally focused on quality metrics and, and information output that have nothing to do with your company metrics and company output, then you can't run an effective company. You're not going to hit your revenue targets. You're not going to have good hires. You're not going to be able to communicate your successes adequately to, to critical stakeholders and partners. So I, I use that as one example. I think there's a number of other examples, but I would say for that's one of the big ones that struck me was from a risk analysis perspective. Um, and I have a, a bit of a history as a gambler, so I'm, I'm used to the idea of risk analysis being a probabilistic outcome. Um, you have to think about your decisions as probabilistic fractions of success rather than saying, okay, I'm going to wait to make a decision until I know every single piece of input. So staying along with that, question I like to usually end the interviews with is what advice, if you could share advice with the audience, what would it be? Is that a life advice question or an entrepreneurship advice question? You pick it. <laughs> um I feel like they come together. I feel like everyone should have an entrepreneurial mindset. That's just me. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a fair point, too. Uh, I guess I would say, I mean, the number one thing that I think struck me and. Man, OK, well, this is going to get a little heady, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think this is very important to me. My personal life changed a lot when I started the company, and, and it's, it's changed a lot because I've always had a salary. So. Back in my 20s, you know, I was making money in an industry. You made money every day. You knew you were making money that year. And then you go to graduate school, and at least in the sciences, you get a stipend. So you're basically paid to research, and, and you have no real correlation between the quality of your output and the amount of money you're going to make in any given time period because you know that you're safe. You know that you're going to be making that money. And when you start a company, that safety net evaporates. Uh, you know, all of a sudden you're counting your your salary monthly. You're going, okay, I've got X number of months of runway. I got to do something within the next six months or I'm not going to have a job anymore. And I'm going to have to go look for a job and I don't have any safety net. And that became, that, that was a very stressful situation initially. But then once you get used to that mode of living, you realize two things. One is I think it's better to live in a world where you are rewarded according to the quality of your output. And I'm not saying, you know, ultra capitalism, people that don't work should starve. What I am saying is uh, everybody should be taken care of to the extent that is possible. But if you contribute value, a part of that value should be given back to you. And, and, and in a lot of ways, I think that's even a little anti-capitalist because we've become such a salaried society that uh, the idea of personal responsibility for high quality output has become rather sublimated in the public consciousness, in my opinion. And the other side of that is that, and this is the where it gets a little heady, you know, safety is an illusion at the end of the day because the world is dynamic and there's a lot of a lot of variables, a lot of different ways of expressing this in a number of different world systems. But just because you have a salary job, for example, I mean, my mother got laid off from her job. She was working for the same company for 30 something years and got laid off uh, last year. So she had a salary. Uh, she had nominal safety. Uh, but then that all evaporated with with less than six months of warning, even 30 something years into that career. So I think we, we sort of tell ourselves, hey, you know, there's this social safety net. Hey, we will always have these relationships, this salary, this career trajectory, whatever it is. If you work for it, it'll be there to protect you. And in my world, that's just not true. In my world, you kind of have to eat what you kill, which means you have to kill to eat. Um, and I'm not saying everybody needs to live that way, but I do think it would be good for the majority of people to take a step back and take stock of what they take for granted as a safety net 
and what they're actually doing to, to, to grab the brass ring in terms of what they want to accomplish, what they want from their lives, family, career, uh, you know, even if it's just running a marathon, even if it's whatever it is, that whatever's holding them back from doing that, they need to drop that and, and really push forward and move forward. So I think that kind of ties into the, what you're saying about the entrepreneurial mindset in perhaps a bit more of a shark-like way of expressing it, but that's who I am as a person. <laughs> I, I agree. And if I'm to tease something out of that, what I'm hearing and feeling is that, you know, take a risk once in a while, because what you think is guaranteed is not guaranteed either. I, I would say so. We're only on this planet so long, you may as well try to do something you want to do. Well, Aiden, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Are there any last words you'd like to share with the audience? Nope. Other than to say that uh, I hope everybody thinks about the food that they're eating. You know, I, I think that uh, we've become very disconnected from our food sources. And as you and I were talking about, food should be a thoughtful endeavor. It should be an intimate endeavor uh, and one that expresses, you know, care and interest. So I hope everybody thinks about what they're eating today and, and makes good eating choices. Well, thank you so much, Aiden. And I look forward to catching up with your progress in a few months. Much appreciated, Raj. Thank you for having me on. It's been a delight.